He's the Angel of Light and the Prince of Darkness. And no, I'm not talking about Michael Jackson. I'm talking about the devil. There was actually a recent Barna research poll. It revealed that only 35% of Christians believe that the devil is an actual spiritual being. And that means at least 65% of Christians are deceived. And I would say most of these Christians aren't even actually Christians, but that's another story. Let's just be clear on one thing today, though. The devil is real, and the Bible tells us all about him. And if you have any questions about the devil, we will probably answer them today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, my goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. My name is Luke Taylor. Today we are continuing this study of Ezekiel 28, and this is where we're going to drill down verse by verse in this description of the devil. Ezekiel 28 is perhaps the most descriptive chapter about Satan in the whole Bible. And that's why last time, I I didn't even want to get into the details so much as last time I really just wanted to establish for everyone listening who chapter 28 is really about. If you need any help with that, go back to our previous lesson. It was the Ezekiel series, part 47. But now that we've established who it really is in Ezekiel 28, today we get to go that next level. We're going to cover a lot of the same verses as last time, but we're going to go that next level deeper. And today we get to talk about what it all means. So grab your Bible, turn to Ezekiel 28, and let's find the devil in the details. Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. And so, as I mentioned last time, even though this section is supposedly about the king of Tyre, I believe it is actually about Satan. And so, in the previous section, and that was verses 1 through 10, they were addressed to the prince of Tyre. This next section in verses 11 through 19 is addressed to the king of Tyre. Now, there were not two human rulers or two leaders in Tyre. The previous section was actually about the human leader. And this section is about the real leader of Tyre, the real king, and that is the devil. For example, it says the king of Tyre was perfect in beauty. Now, that would actually not describe a human. There is no human who's the signet of perfection. Okay, sorry, ladies. Robert Pattinson is not the signet of perfection, um, unless he's the devil, (laughs) which, okay, maybe, I don't know. But why is Satan mentioned here alongside the king of Tyre? I believe Tyre had been given over to the devil's jurisdiction at this point in history. Every domain, every nation or territory, it has some kind of spiritual being that's placed in charge of it. And that's what I've also been covering on my other podcast, Weird Stuff in the Bible. And um, the Bible does not say this, but but I believe at this time in history, Tyre had just been placed under the domain of Satan. And so he is the power behind the power of the king of Tyre. And it just makes me wonder... Are there any nations that are under Satan's direct control today? And I don't know. I mean, it's it's possible. I have my I have my suspicions, but it's speculative. It changes over time. 
And I think in one sense, he has a level of control over just about every nation that's out there. If you remember in The Temptation of Christ, it said in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now notice that Jesus' response, he didn't say, You can't give me all the kingdoms of the world. What are you talking about? That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, No, I'm not going to worship you. He quoted a scripture to go along with that. But he did not challenge Satan's ability to give them to Jesus. And I don't think Satan was making an offer that he couldn't deliver on because then it wouldn't have been a temptation. So I, I think Satan was capable of handing all the kingdoms of the world over to Jesus. I'd say he is, on some level, he has control over every nation. But my theory is that he just had a more direct control over the land of Tyre and over its king that's right here in Ezekiel 28. Um, much like he's probably going to use the Antichrist as his puppet in the tribulation. And so I, and he, I think potentially he could have that much control over a world leader today as well. So it's just something to keep in mind, something to keep you up at night. Uh, let's go on to verse 13 right here, back in Ezekiel 28. It reads, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now, I covered this a little bit on the last episode. Um, in fact, I covered everything on the last episode. I'm just expanding on it this time around. Like I said, we're digging in. And this is the verse that basically proves right here that we're talking about Satan, not talking about the human king of Tyre. Satan was the one who was in Eden. And this gives a description of what Satan looks like. He said he was covered in precious stones. Heaven is full of precious stones. Um, heaven is a place of bright, Sparkly lights, a, a variety of colors. You know, the, these stones mentioned here, these are red, they're blue, green, gold, or yellow. These are, these are gemstones is how we might think of them. The priest in Israel in Old Testament times, they would wear a garment with, I think it had 12 gemstones. And I think they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but they weren't all the same as these gemstones. And so it's more likely Satan's covered with them. It's mentioned them here, these colorful and bright stones. Um, because he was once a heavenly being, as we'll kind of read later. Uh, but I read a quote in the previous lesson by Dr. Michael Heiser. They are descriptors of shiningness or luminescence. And so the devil was a shining being. The word for serpent in, in Genesis 6 is nakash, which means shining one. In Isaiah 14, that's another passage about the devil. It's very similar to Ezekiel 28. That chapter uses the word Lucifer to describe Satan. In Isaiah 14, 12, it reads, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. The word day star in the Hebrew is the word Lucifer. That's how some Bibles actually translate verse 12. They'll say Lucifer right there. It's a word that means light bearer or shining one. And so Satan was a bright and luminous being. And, and not even just a simple white or yellow light. According to Ezekiel 28, he shines with all the colors of the rainbow, which is kind of interesting because you, you look at how um, wicked and demonic a certain movement is here in America that has adopted the rainbow as its symbol. 
uh, you know, I kind of covered this back in a, uh, I did a five part series on the pride movement back in summer of 2023. Um, rainbows are not inherently bad. You know, God used the rainbow in Genesis nine, but God's rainbow, this is kind of interesting. God's rainbow has seven colors. The rainbow of the gay pride patch, it only has six colors and six is the devil's number. God's number is seven. It's the number of perfection or completion. The devil uses six in the Bible. The Antichrist number is 666. I'm sure you've heard that before. And so I just kind of find it a little interesting there. Their rainbow doesn't have the seven colors. They have the six colors. What's the significance, though, of the devil being bright? You know, what does that mean? I would say, you know, it's as humans, just we're, we're attracted to shiny things. You know, humans are naturally mesmerized and drawn to shiny objects. It's why gold and diamonds are so valuable. I mean, where'd that come from? You know, whoever decided that we need to ascribe value to gold? Why does a three-carat diamond ring cost 30,000 bucks? You know, why is that? Humans just naturally do that. We see a lot of value in bright and beautiful things. And Satan uses that natural inclination of the human heart. He uses that as a temptation. He deceives us by taking evil things and making them look beautiful. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So even if an angel were to appear to you, the Bible says you don't necessarily have to listen to them. Their words need to be lined up with what the Bible says. Or they might be an evil angel who's actually sent to deceive you. That's why Paul warns us in Galatians 1.8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, do you think Paul was exaggerating right there <laughs> about, you know, if an angel shows up, you can disregard it if it has a different gospel? I don't think he's exaggerating. I think it's a possibility. Even an angel, if they showed up, you don't have to listen to them. If they preach another gospel, let them be accursed. That means Joseph Smith was deceived. Joseph Smith claimed to have been visited by an angel in the 1800s who gave him basically a new Bible. It's called the, we call it the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon was supposed to correct the mistakes of the actual Bible. And so, and I'm using correct right there in quotation marks, of course. This is where the Mormonism or the, the Latter-day Saints movement, their religion, that's where it comes from. It's, hey, you meet a Mormon, they're some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. But I would say they are sadly deceived because they follow another gospel. One of their books of Mormon, it literally says this. I'm going to quote it for you word by word right here. It says, in September 1823, and at later times, Joseph Smith received visitations from Moroni, an angel of light, who revealed the resting place of the ancient record from which the Book of Mormon was afterward translated. It says right there in their own documents, Joseph Smith got this information from Moroni, an angel of light. That's the exact thing the New Testament warns us about, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So that's an, apparently not a hard trick for him to pull off, because he is Lucifer. He's the shining one. And it's a, it's interesting or ironic that you might say the shining one is the prince of darkness. All right, let's move on to verse 14 now. We've, we've only covered three so far today. Let's try to get a, a fourth verse. Um, do I go a little slow through these books sometimes? I, I would say so. I mean, we're on, our, we're on our 48th episode of our journey through Ezekiel. Ezekiel has 48 chapters, 
we are only on chapter 28, so um, I don't I do not always try to cover a whole chapter per episode. Uh, and in fact, this one right here, this is a chapter wor- well worth slowing down for. So verse 14, it says, still speaking to Satan, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So it says, this, it says to us right there, Satan was a cherub. This is the singular form of the word cherubim. And the cherubim are the angels who surround or perhaps even guard God's presence. Cherubim are mentioned a few times in scripture, um, lots of times actually. They're placed in statue form on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Cherubim are the ones who kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and and made them stay out. And so it's it's interesting that Ezekiel is probably the book that gives us the most of a physical description of cherubim. We see them in chapters 1 and 10 of this book. And we've already gone into it in in detail on this podcast before. Um, In fact, let me start. I'm going to go back to chapter 10. It says, and everyone had, uh, this is chapter 10, verse 14, talking about the cherubim. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub. And the second face was a human face. And the third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. So the faces are a lion, a cherub, a human, and an eagle. So you say, okay, okay, but but what did a cherub look like? You know, <laughs> like, what is the face of a cherub? What does that mean? Well, Ezekiel had viewed these same creatures in chapter one. And we covered that on episode five of this podcast. That would have been part two of the Ezekiel series. Isn't all that a bit confusing? So on YouTube, if you ever want to look back on YouTube, I have a playlist of all my podcast episodes of cross-references from one to 108, and that is today's. And then I have a second playlist with just the Ezekiel series of lessons. And so um, that's where you can look if you want to go like all the way back to the early days of this podcast. And back then, I thought it would take me about two years to get through Ezekiel. (laughs) So here we are about two and a half years in and still powering through. Anyway, we have four faces on a cherubim, on a cherub in chapter 10. It said a lion, a cherub, a human, and an eagle. So if you're wondering, what does a cherub face look like? Well, there's a similar description of the cherubim in chapter one. And if you go to verse 10 there, it says, as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. So three of the four faces are the same right here. But on one of them, it said the face of an ox. In chapter 10, it said the face of a cherub. But back in chapter one, Ezekiel called it the face of an ox. And this word for ox is shore in the Hebrew. And it means an ox, or it can mean a bull or a head of cattle. So it's what we might call a bovine animal, if you were talking about them as an English categorization. It's the cattle type of animal. Cows, buffalo, bison, bulls, calves, anything like that. That's what bovine means. And so this tells us that this is what a cherub's face looks like. It looks like the face of a cow. And so I did a whole episode, as I was mentioning, what does Satan look like? It was part 15 of the Ezekiel series. And this is an illuminating revelation Because it brings a a greater context to Israel's conflicts and temptations that they go through in the Old Testament. Now, who was the deity or the godlike figure who most often battled the Israelites in the Old Testament? Do you remember? It was this false god who was called Baal. B-A-A-L. You don't have to go far in the Old Testament stories to run into this Baal guy. What you might not realize, though, is that Baal is an Old Testament name or identity of 
Satan, Satan himself. By the time of the New Testament, he has had his name changed to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. You can see more on that in Mark 3. But it was the same figure. His name just went through some alterations over time. Now, what did a Baal idol look like? Well, it might surprise you or it might not surprise you to find out that a Baal idol was actually a calf or a bull. Sometimes it was a bull head on a human body. But he was a bovine figure, which is coincidentally, we might say, not so coincidentally, what Satan looks like. Now, does Satan have the other four faces, you know, that it mentions as a cherub could have? I have no idea. But he was a cherub, so I'd, I'd say at minimum he has the face of a cherub, and he desires to be worshipped, as we will cover in a few minutes. And so he desired ancient people, and even the ancient Israelites, to worship him, either worship him in a Baal form or through some other way. Do you remember what the Israelites did right after the Red Sea crossing and after Moses went up on the mountain? It says in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 4, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's such a bizarre story. Like, of all things for them to turn to worship, why would they turn to a cow? Like, what? why? What is the draw to worship a golden calf? Well, I'd say this was not something random. There was a spiritual draw for them to do this. You might also recall an evil king in 1 Kings 11. His name was Jeroboam. And he caused Israel to sin in a big way. It says in verse 28 of that chapter, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Golden calves. So, and this was like the apostasy of the northern kingdom of Israel. Calves. Now, why calves? Why throw God away over a, a calf? Well, they weren't just worshiping random idols. They had been deceived into worshiping Satan himself. Once you understand that, like all this stuff falls into place. He, he's present even in lots of stories where he's not directly mentioned. You see the devil's hand at work. Uh, one more thing that it brought up in verse 14 was the stones of fire. And I explained about the stones of fire the last time. It's referring to God's divine counsel. This is his gathering of spiritual beings who God uses to rule over mankind. And so perhaps those territorial spirits I'm, I, I mentioned before, um, but perhaps he, Satan had a seat at the table in the past, and he had got kicked out at this point when he was cast out of heaven. Verses 28, uh, Ezekiel 28, 15, it says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So Satan, he had it so good, and then he blew it. And we'll just keep going along. Verse 16, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. It says Satan was kicked out of heaven. 
And I would say this is around the same time as Adam and Eve's sin happened in Genesis 3. Satan was kicked out, and so in revenge, as a way to try to kind of get back at God, he decided he would try to corrupt God's good creation. And so he crept into the Garden of Eden, he deceived the first humans, and God had to have them evicted. And it's kind of interesting. You know, his outcome, it did mirror Adam and Eve's. Just as Satan was evicted from heaven, Adam and Eve's sin got them evicted from the Garden. Uh, But Adam and Eve didn't commit the first sin. I actually think the first sin was Satan's sin. And it said his sin was pride. That was back in verse 17. The, The gifts that God had given to Satan, they made him proud, and they made him think that he was better than God. And so that's a good reminder for us about the danger of taking pride in our gifts, especially our spiritual gifts. Um, That's why I often say pride is the big one. Okay, C.S. Lewis called it the great sin. He said pride is what made the devil the devil. If we go back to Isaiah 14 for a moment, there's a verse there, and it it referred to Satan as Lucifer, the morning star. Let me read a little bit further. Or was was it the morning star? Let me look back. It said the day star. Okay, the day star is what it said there. Maybe a different translation says morning star. I'm not sure. Um, But it called him the day star. Let's keep reading from there, though. What did it say after that? Well, in Isaiah 14, 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Those are the five I will statements of Satan. I will, I will, I will. It's all about I. It's all about me, pride, ego. And that is the great sin. That, that's the big one. Satan wanted God's throne. And, and that's even the temptation he kind of used with Eve. You know, he said, hey, you shall be as God, or you shall be as a God if you eat this fruit. See, that was what got Satan, and that was what he used against Eve. And this is what pride does to us, guys. That it, does, it does a couple things to you. The obvious one is that it makes you self-centered. Okay, we know know that, duh. I will, I will, I will. It makes you obsess over yourself to look at everything through through like a lens of how does this affect me? Um, Some think that pride just means to think too highly of yourself. That's not exactly it. In fact, I think many prideful people are actually (laughs) incredibly insecure. Like they actually don't think very highly of themselves. They're they're just terrified of what everyone else thinks. And so... That's what dr- drives them to brag and boast so much and point out all their good, all their good qualities um, in case someone doesn't notice it. You know, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily reflect what they think of themselves. They just want to get their affirmation from what they can get you to think about them. And um, which is kind of ironic because that's one of my biggest turnoffs is listening to someone who just wants to brag on themselves like that just makes me like them less and think less of them. <laughs> and yet they're doing it so I would think more of them. So it has a, there's a, um, uh, it, it backfires whenever you try to be boastful, uh, at least with me. And so it's to, to be prideful, though, it's not necessarily to just think too highly of yourself. The real issue is whenever you think primarily about yourself, whether you have high self esteem or low self esteem, the, the devil's goal is the esteem. Just getting you to focus everything inward, everything internally, constantly reciting your own history, you know, not being able to get over your past, dwelling on everything that's ever happened to you, dwelling on how it affected you. Uh, one of the things that's like a ast- kind of astonished me to learn over the past few years uh, is is I've learned there are so many celebrities 
who are in therapy. You know, all these actors, all these big name people, uh, so many of them guys are just mental wrecks. They just, and the thing is, it's because they can't get over themselves. You know, they, they just can't stop obsessing about themselves. And it's ruining their lives that they have psychological issues out the wazoo about it. Hey, if you want to make some money, go become a therapist in Los Angeles. Okay, these therapists, these celebrities, they are pouring money into paying other people to listen to them, talk about themselves, and they just can't stop doing it. So there, there you go if you want to get rich quick. Anyway, enough about self-centeredness. Let me tell you about the other thing that pride does, okay? It makes you self-centered, but the other thing that it does, it makes you others-centered. Um, I'll, I'll use another thought here from C.S. Lewis. He said, pride gets no enjoyment out of having something, but only in having more of it than someone else does. So you see, pride is about the comparison game. It's about wanting to have more than the person next to you, okay? Or not wanting them to have more than what you have. Um, I think about that dragon in the Hobbit books. His name is Smog or Smaug or something like that. Smog is a talking dragon. He lives in a mountain and he sleeps on a pile of gold. What is the dragon ever going to do with all that gold? <laughs> you know, like think about it realistically. He can't go down to the market and buy something with it. He has no wallet. He has no practical use for money. I mean, he's he's a dragon, okay? He's terrifying. Nobody wants to be around him. Nobody wants to do business with him. Um, I'm assuming if he wanted something to eat, he, he's just going to go and eat it. You know, he doesn't need to take money and go down and buy it. So what's the deal with all that money? Well, it's because he doesn't want anyone else to have it. Um, Smog is like a really brilliantly written satanic character okay like that's really what he is he's a very satanic figure i'm not saying that it's wrong to read those books or watch the movies or whatever i I, there's just a lot of spiritual parallels right there he is a dragon just like satan is a dragon his chief characteristic is pride i mean J.R.R. tolkien he tapped into some deep spiritual realities whenever he was writing those stories like this is a dragon who is consumed with pride and that ends up being kind of his downfall in the story the Hobbit was able to distract the dragon by just puffing up his ego. And so and that, that I guess that kind of brought about how he died and um, or lost his the stone he was wanting to keep. Anyway, you got to read the books or whatever to, or watch the movie to to get the whole story. But it's just interesting to me. Pride is the thing that that was his downfall. And I wonder if that will be Satan's downfall as well. Um, I mean, definitely this arrogance that he thinks he can bring down God or thwart God's plans in the end. And so... Um, and, and the pride of the devil that's actually connected with why the New Testament tells us not to take new Christians and put them in positions of leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 3.6, it's talking about the qualifications for a leader in the church. He says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The same thing that brought the devil down could bring anyone down. And so that's the devil's trap. And it can be a lot of our traps as well, when we have pride in ourselves or pride in the good gifts that God is the one who gave us. And so um, let's read the last verses from today before we go. Actually, I'm going to take another short break. I'm going to grab a drink and then we will talk about these last verses of the chapter. Next time on this podcast, we're going to continue in our study of the devil. Today was um, about learning the enemy. Okay, so we've reviewed the details of the devil. We talked about where he came from, 
And in a moment, we'll talk about where he's going. But in between all of that, we're in the battle. And I haven't even really talked yet about how to fight him. And so that is what our next lesson is going to be about, how to fight our spiritual enemy, Satan. And so our next episode is going to move into New Testament mode. And we will come back to our Ezekiel studies after a few weeks. But anyway, make sure you're subscribed so that you can get it. On Weird Stuff in the Bible, our next episode, it's going to be called When Did Satan Fight Over the Body of Moses? I might change the the title, but that's the subject, okay? That's referring to a, a strange verse that we see in the book of Jude. And so it's part of a joint effort that I'm undertaking here at the start of the year on both my podcasts. I'm trying to just expose everything about the devil. If you have any questions for me about this one, you can email crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I got a mailbag for you today. Uh, This is from the episode that was talking about the historical fall of Tyre in Ezekiel 26. That was an episode that really didn't get a lot of attention, um, not a lot of downloads, and I didn't expect it to. You know, I, I wasn't surprised whenever it didn't. Not a lot of people out there are looking for Ezekiel 26. Uh, but some people might be, and that's, so listen, after it was up for a week or two, I actually received this really nice feedback, and this is from Dustin, and this is what he said. A plus, great timing. This is a subject that I recently heard people claiming is a failed prophecy, and using it to argue that the Bible is not inerrant. I've listened to others try to justify the prophecy, but still sounding unsure of the answer. However, your casual approach and explanation absolutely decimates the failed prophecy claim Great episode, really good stuff. And so I just reading that to say, hey, Dustin, I appreciate your message. That's why I'm covering every verse of Ezekiel. Um, Because otherwise, you know, I probably never would have done a Bible study on Ezekiel 26. You know, like I said, it's not one of the highly trafficked trafficked areas of the Bible. Um, But I just knew there'd be someone out there who maybe someday somebody, someone would appreciate it. And so, and hey, at some point, you know, lots of people might need a good resource on Ezekiel 26. And I just wanted to throw that out there in case it could help somebody. So you're welcome, Dustin. I appreciate your feedback. And um, for everyone else, if you want to leave feedback, you can send it to that email address or you can leave it. If you're on a platform that does comments, you can always leave a comment as well. And so that's why I do these verse by verse studies through Ezekiel. All right, let's go on to verses 18 and 19 and finish up for today. These verses are about the fate of the devil And they have not happened yet. You know, even though they sound like they did, they actually have not happened yet. And I will explain why. Verses 18 and 19. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So these last couple verses are talking, I believe, about the fate of the devil. And I actually don't think this has happened yet. It says where all the peoples are appalled at him. Um, I mean, and obviously it says there that he came to a dreadful end. Well, the devil hasn't come to an end yet. And so I believe this is actually talking about the devil's final fate. And that's where his trial takes place, perhaps at the great white throne judgment. Um, And this is the moments before he's cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Isaiah talks about this also back in Isaiah 14, verses 16 and 17. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, 
who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities. And so people are sitting there going to be in shock. Like this was the, this was the guy, like this was the being he's like a, you know, he's, we thought he was a lion. He looks like a worm. That's what, that's what they're going to be saying when they see the devil there finally exposed before the world, especially in comparison to God almighty. And so this is that that's, everyone's going to see him for who he is. Uh, I mean, you know, mentioned people think he's the lion. The new Testament talks about him going about as a roaring lion. We're going to talk about this more next time. And we should take him seriously. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't take the devil seriously, but the, 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 it says in the New Testament, he goes about as a roaring lion. He's not actually a roaring lion. Jesus is the lion. The devil is a masquerader. He's an imposter. And so when we'll see him someday, we'll see him exposed and we'll say, is this the man? Like, we were, who, we were afraid of him? Look at him there, lying in the dirt, you know. So... This is going to happen in the future. But, but if it's going to happen in the future, why is it past tense? Well, I think I can explain that. Um, sometimes the Bible uses past tense to talk about things that haven't happened yet, but it's doing it because they are such a done deal, it's like they might as well have already happened. Okay, so th- th- talking about the things that are just set in stone, going to happen. An example is Romans 8.30. It's, this is the verse that says, And those whom, whom he predestined, he also called. In those whom he called, he also justified. In those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this verse can kind of mess with some people's theology a little bit, because we know that glorification doesn't happen until we get to heaven. That's whenever we're made perfect, and we no longer sin, we no longer even desire to sin. And that has not happened for us yet. But yet you read Romans 8.30, and it speaks about it as if it already did happen. What's up with that? Well, it's talking about something that's a done deal. You know, it hasn't happened yet, but if you are in Christ, then your future glorification in the heavenly kingdom, that is confirmed. It is sealed. Nothing can separate you from God. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the same thing certainly applies to the doom of the devil. He is going to be put on trial. He's going to be exposed before the world, and then he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. That is a done deal. It just hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. And so uh, that doesn't mean we won't talk about it. That's what we're going to be focusing on two episodes from now. So the next episode, we're going to talk about how to fight Satan. And then two episodes from now, I want to talk about the final fate and the doom of Satan. And so in closing today, let's go back to what Jesus said about seeing Satan cast out of heaven, falling like lightning. You know, to me, I, I think I said this last time, but that's, that implies God just backhanded Satan pretty hard <laughs> whenever he kicked him out. You know, when someone falls, they don't just fall like lightning fast, okay? So if that was how fast Satan was falling from heaven, I, I'm thinking there must have been a little bit of force behind that. <laughs> so um, I, this reminds me of a story. I, I I used to just like to use, you know, cheesy pickup lines on my wife. Uh, this was after we were married. But I would, you know, when my wife would get home or I'd come through the door, I would often just like try a, a pickup line on her just to be kind of silly and flirty with her. And uh, so one time I used the, the classic line, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? You, you probably heard that before. And then the girl looks confused and you say, you're supposed to say, because I think I'm looking at an angel. You know, so you, you, so, so you say something like that and that's supposed to, that's how the pickup line works. Only whenever I said it, she just kind of thought that phrase through theologically. I said, hey, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? And she says, are you calling me the devil? 
<laughs> so the guys, that's the problem. If you if you're a theology nerd, if you marry another theology nerd, she might just require a little bit more elaboration if you try to call her an angel. Okay? Just keep that in mind. I was thinking maybe in her Valentine's card, I'll tell her she's the signet of perfection and perfect in beauty. But she she knows her Bible well enough. She'll probably get that reference as well. So, But if you're dating a girl who doesn't know her Bible too well, well, there you go. Maybe you can use that one. So, okay, I, I had a point I was building up to here. I have a point. Is that phrase about seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Let me read this as it originally appears in Luke 10. This is verse 18 and verse 19. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So Satan fell like lightning. Jesus said this because the disciples were coming to him amazed. They said, even the demons flee when they, they hear the name of Jesus. And he's like, well, yeah, totally. I've given you authority to tread on serpents. I got some good news for you too, listener. We have authority. We aren't just limited to knowing about the devil. We have been spiritually equipped. If you're in Christ, you have been equipped to stand against him. Not just playing defense, you can even go on offense. And we're going to learn how to do that next time. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor, and I hope the Bible makes more sense to you after this episode.